everyone agrees on the need for a zero-tolerance approach to slavery and human trafficking and global supply chains. But how do we make that a reality? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. When it comes to the issue of human trafficking and slavery, the goal has to be the creation of a risk-free supply chain. The key for ethical companies is to stop reacting to disclosures of unacceptable labor practices and adopt a proactive approach to preventing them from occurring in the first place. Today, in part two of our series on the topic, I'll be talking about what it takes to eliminate human trafficking from complex multi-tier supply chains with my guest Brian Alster, Global Head of Supply and Compliance with Dunn & Bradstreet. He talks about the conflicting priorities that companies must deal with as they struggle to embrace a deep and broad-based effort to fight slavery around the world. We'll learn how you can achieve visibility across the many sub-tiers of suppliers that make up a modern-day supply chain. It's the right thing to do, and it just happens to be good business, too. So here is my conversation with Brian Alster. Brian Alster, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Bob. You know, Brian, we talk about needing processes to create a risk-free supply chain when it comes to preventing human trafficking and slavery within supply chains. But that phrase, risk-free, seems a little bit suspect to me. Is that actually possible? You know, it's a great point. I don't think anyone can ever be risk-free. There are always going to be risks that we can't prepare for and that companies in general cannot prepare for. But I do think that the best programs are the ones that are proactive in mitigating risk on every level. Okay, well, we're going to d- dive into the details of what that constitutes. But first of all, I want you to make for me the business case for being proactive in this area. It's a great point. There are probably two key areas that procurement organizations historically have been responsible for in the supply chain space. And it predominantly has focused around cost or expense mitigation and reducing overall costs. As you look forward and over the last decade, a lot of these roles have shifted and it's no longer the only responsibility is to reduce costs, but it's also around brand protection. And with brand protection brings a slew of challenges that face supply organizations on a day-in and day basis. I sometimes refer to Warren Buffett. He had a great quote a couple years back. He said something to the effect of, it takes 20 years to build a brand reputation. It takes five minutes to lose it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that's very important that companies need to focus on when they're focusing in this space. And that is, how do they work to protect their brand and to mitigate risk while also focusing on their primary objective for the last umpteen decades, which is to reduce expense. And it's a very tricky balance because today companies are being asked to do deeper due diligence on the companies that they're doing business with, but they're also being asked to do it in a manner that is quicker than ever before 
because now onboarding vendors and suppliers has a revenue impact. So it has to be faster, and they need to do it with less resources. So they're being asked to, to have conflicting goals. You must go deeper, faster, with less. I think that's where the challenges come in how do they do this? How can supply organizations effectively juggle and balance these sometimes conflicting goals? What Buffett said certainly holds true in the case of tainted product. When people are getting sick or dying or the like, that certainly is enough to kill a brand. But the question I have is when it comes to the issue of human trafficking and, and slavery, which is not really that visible to the public eye, when you use the phrase brand protection, you are presupposing that the public, that consumers actually care about this issue. Do they? That's a great question. I've seen more and more conversations with clients that it is getting into both shareholder activism and the direct public eye, which has an impact on them. There's been several examples throughout the last two or three years where companies have had unfortunately been on the front page if a sub-tier supplier, and by sub-tier supplier, I mean it could be a supplier's supplier's supplier. So three tiers removed from the end product ends up being identified as someone that's using forced labor or human slavery to produce either a raw material or a service. And that comes back and it always rolls uphill, unfortunately, to the end product, the final company that has the output that is in direct interaction with the consumer. And we have seen more and more shareholder activism, so it's impacting the stock price, as well as on the shelves, so it's impacting the top and bottom line of a company. Certainly we can say, first of all, the reason to do this is because it is the right thing to do. <laughs> but <laughs> beyond that, it's also of benefit to companies, too, as you're pointing out. Now, yes. how does one then proceed to create a zero-tolerance policy? And there is no other policy that you, know, that you could have. You're not going to tolerate a little bit of human trafficking in your supply chain. You're going to tolerate none. So give me some first steps, initial steps that companies can make, and uh, tell me how they set the tone within an organization to go in that direction. That's absolutely correct. And right now, companies are more and more trying to look towards automated solutions as well as ways that they can put preventative measures in to ensure that they are eliminating any forced labor in their supply chain. The quickest way to do this is deeper due diligence on every supplier you're bringing in and it's not enough anymore to just be looking at your immediate tier one suppliers. You need to be doing a deeper due diligence on your suppliers' suppliers. So we call that a, what do we call as a sub-tier analysis or a tier N analysis because you're looking at multiple tiers under your first supplier's supply chain to truly understand where all the raw materials are being sourced from. The second thing is, once you have that understanding you can then utilize information to assist you. For example, there are tools out there based on a government agency or NGOs that we can identify certain industries and certain geographic locations around the world where human trafficking is more prevalent. And by simply identifying where in the world and in what industries there's a higher propensity for human trafficking, we can help companies identify where they should be focusing the majority of their efforts to weed out those issues. And when you talk about sub-tier visibility, 
Are you suggesting or indeed requiring that companies have this direct visibility of all the tiers of their supply chain? In other words, you don't rely on tier one to police tier two and tier two to police tier three. You're really saying that it is possible and indeed desirable and indeed necessary to have total tier visibility from the very top? It is a best demonstrated practice. So what we've seen is that there's three or four different layers of what I would say a healthy understanding of your supply chain. There's ones that have no programs at all. That's the far left side of the pendulum. And as you move towards middle, you can see those that are emerging. And what I mean by emerging is they might have a trust-based program where they're working directly with their suppliers and collecting information directly from them and relying on them to provide accurate information that might require supplier surveys. It might be restricted to just a minimal set of reporting. And then as you move across the pendulum and you start swinging towards the right, what you're seeing is a more developed program. This might have dedicated resources within the supply chain organization. You're going to see site audits and site visits. You're going to see published policies where they're going to be dictating what the processes are to adhere to these policies. You're going to see codes of conduct. But then when you get to a fully optimized solution, Bob, it's exactly what you had said. To get to a zero-tolerance policy, you as the company must take proactive ownership of all of the sub-tiered suppliers to ensure that you're weeding out those issues. Certainly, we have learned that the mere existence of a supplier code of conduct is not enough because just about every major OEM, apparel manufacturer, high-tech manufacturer has something like that on their books, which they are only too happy to trumpet. And yet, sometimes those are the very companies that discover violations deep in their supply chain. So just to have that piece of paper, not enough, right? Absolutely not. No. I think that maybe a decade or two ago, one would get away with saying that they had a best-in-class process because they had a code of conduct. We clearly learned that simply having a code of conduct in place is part of a policy. It's not a successful process to implement that policy. It's the culture that the organization thrives in that starts to develop what a successful program is. It's ensuring that you do have an expectation of zero tolerance. It's also bringing in a cultural understanding that there's ethically something wrong with cutting corners and that you cannot allow forced labor or human trafficking into your supply chain because it's just plain wrong. You talk about site audits and site visits. Let's start with audits. What form does that take? How often should they be conducted? Who conducts them? How deep should they go? Tell me about that. It's a great question. And with different companies that we've been working with in different industries, we've seen different thresholds. But one thing is common, that there is a strong process rooted in analytics to help companies understand what processes they need to adhere to and a rules engine that helps them understand a few things. One, what industry are they in? Two, what types of product, raw material, or service are they receiving from each company? And three, how high a risk threshold do they have should something go wrong with that given supplier. When you put all of those things together, you're going to come up with different answers depending on different companies. But having it deeply rooted in analytics is critical for a company. I think that as you look to some examples, I can tell you that, for example, if I'm a technology company and I'm making microchips, 
I'm going to look at my food services vendor very differently than I'm going to look at where I'm getting the conflict minerals in third world countries to help produce the microchips. Two vendors, they may be onboarded similarly at the same time, but you would have very different questions for each of them, and you'd have very different expectations for audits. In order to have analytics, you need data. Now, where does that data come from? Obviously, some of it comes from the suppliers themselves. You're asking yeah. the suppliers to provide information on their own adherence to these things, but you cannot 100% rely on the word of the suppliers, can you not? Where else do you go? You talked a little bit about NGOs. What about outside sources that can help to back up the data that you're getting directly from the suppliers? Who's that? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I talked about that three-legged stool earlier in our conversation, Bob, where companies are being asked to do three things, and they don't necessarily work in concordance with each other. The first is they need to do deeper due diligence. They need to understand exactly who they're doing business with at a level they've never had to before. Secondly, they need to do it faster because the onboarding of new suppliers is in direct correlation to how quickly I can start to grow my revenue or my top line. And the third is I need to do it with less resources than ever before because we are trying to be more cost conscious and more efficient overall. If you do that, the only way to successfully go deeper in the due diligence rabbit hole, faster and with less resources, is to rely on automation and third-party data. Automation is around the utilizing of the analytics we talked about. Third-party data requires you to append data on certain suppliers or third parties that you're engaging with that is not collected directly from the third party. So that requires you to go out to data providers like Dun & Bradstreet and be able to append that data in a near real-time fashion so that you can understand what kind of information you have for example, you can pull in where they're geographically located, what their size is, where their operations are, what their subsidiaries are, where their parent companies are located, what industry they're in, what their risks are from a credit perspective, what the risks are from a compliance perspective, how their payment history has been. You can start to bring all of those pieces into the equation to have a better understanding of the risk of an entity that you're not gathering directly from that third party. Are there times when you might be gathering information? Does, might it be desirable to gather information surreptitiously from employees in the factories themselves using cell phones and cell cameras and things like that without the knowledge of the employer? Does that become necessary from time to time? I've got to be honest with you, Bob. That's something we've never really looked into. We're really focused on trying to help customers utilize what we would consider structured data that they can have access to and make meaningful, repeatable decisions. I will tell you that there are times when companies will ask us and we have the ability to go on site and with the permission of the third party, we will interview their employees, we will review and take pictures of the facilities, we will understand in hopes of enabling the company to make a decision on whether or not this supplier has the facilities, the manpower and the managerial organization in order to effectively output the product that they're contracting with them for. So we well, have done that, but I haven't gone down the path that you had mentioned earlier around surveillance. 
Well, sure. I mean, you go there, you announce yourself, they know, everyone knows you're there, and you're interviewing employees who may not actually feel comfortable or be in any position to be truthful with you if the, if, if the interviews are on site and someone's looking over their shoulder. I mean, you must take that into account, right? We do. A lot of what we can do are things that can't be fixed immediately. We're not just taking pictures of some canned view, but it's also things that I've seen successful in the industry are specific interviews, ability to take a look at the workforce and look at the manner in which the business is being conducted, whether the facility is even large enough to handle the the quality and quantity of the potential work that they're going to be doing. So there are ways to circumvent that, but you bring up a good point. It's a point that we have not delved into at this point. So how often should these audits be conducted? The risk assessments that they're doing will typically enable them to determine whether they need to be done uh, multi-times in a given year, depending on the risk that they are inherently creating or scoring them at. I would tell you that you typically see these being done for the riskiest. It could be two to three times a year is what we've seen and experienced, all the way to maybe every two to three years, depending on how limited the risk exposure is to the company. I imagine maybe one of the toughest jobs you face is to achieve visibility at the very beginning of a supply chain. In the case you mentioned of conflict minerals, that would be at the mine. In the case of cotton, it would be in the fields where we've seen instances of child labor in years past. Do you have that visibility or do you need to rely on something a little bit further up the chain, like in the case of conflict minerals, the smelter, not the mine? Can you go all the way to the end there and and see what's going on? There are companies that we've worked with that have been very successful at finding their way back to the very, very beginning of the process. And I will tell you, it takes a lot of time, a significant amount of effort, and a tremendous culture to understand how important it is beyond just a P&L or a revenue number. It's about making sure that we are doing what's right for the world. And I think that you're starting to see that more and more starting at the top of the house in the C-suite. You're starting to see that mandate coming down across all industries. Automotive, for instance, some of the largest automotive industry players have come together and formed an organization, a nonprofit organization called the Automotive Industry Action Group. And it's a nonprofit organization that's helped to set guiding principles for sustainability of their workflows. So you're starting to see this in all different facets, retail, manufacturing. We're starting to see it in technology. So, yeah, I really do believe it starts at the top, and it is very difficult. It requires not only time, energy, resources, but money. Who within the companies that constitute your clients or within OEMs and the like should own this process? Should there be a C-suite officer who oversees ethical supply chains? Who is typically that individual who will set the tone and oversee everything from the standpoint of that company? You know, it's a really good question. We are starting to see more and more companies that we're working with have directors of sustainability. And historically, you saw a lot of these sustainability efforts happen as one-off efforts or part-time jobs within the procurement organization. And now you're seeing them stripped out and focused more on the overall sustainability practice. And as a result, I think what you're seeing now is a fragmentation of where this is by company. We're starting to see it. Sometimes it's rolling up into a C-suite role. 
Other times we're seeing it maybe under a general administration function within HR. And we've also seen it rolling up into general counsel or legal organizations. So we have seen it roll up in a, in a couple of different organizations. I will tell you that's a lot different than over a decade ago when these were afterthoughts focusing predominantly in the procurement organizations. Well, it is certainly inarguable that there is more awareness of the issue now than ever before. But do you believe personally, Brian, that we are really making progress, that things are better now than they were a few years ago? Absolutely. I firmly believe that with greater focus, we have seen greater insight. You don't have to look farther than the front page of the newspaper to see examples of companies making significant changes to the manner in which they conduct business. Unfortunately, most times it's because of a reaction, but we are seeing more and more companies proactively moving towards greater understanding of their supply chain because of the ethical impact than the profitable impact. Well, it's very heartening to hear that. And Brian Ulster of Dun & Bradstreet, I want to thank you so much for taking the time with us to describe the issue of human slavery and trafficking and what's being done about it and how companies can get their ducks in order and, and, and address this issue in a serious and proactive way. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you so much, Bob. I truly appreciate it. That was my conversation with Brian Alster of Dun & Bradstreet, laying out a strategy for eliminating human trafficking and slavery from supply chains. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.